Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello there and kia ora. I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour. There's more than 550,000 podcasts out there in the world today, believe it or not, and hundreds of new ones are coming out every single week. So finding all the good ones can be tough. So each week I stick on my headphones, listen to hours of audio from New Zealand and around the world and share the best of it with you. Coming up today, a song that inspires strong emotions. That song went from the embodiment of my own loneliness to a promise that uh, even in these small moments, right, I realize that you can step through those moments and, and transcend. Then two stories that revolve around getting letters. Remember them? First of all, a globe-trotting basketball player shares his stories I tell on dates, starting off in a field in Kansas. When I got closer to the fence line, I saw that this was no ordinary country balloon. This balloon had an envelope tied to it, an envelope that looked like someone had dragged it through our barnyard on the bottom of the boots my brothers and I wore when we fed the cows and chickens. Its corners were crumpled, and its body was creased, and it had stains that could very well have been poop-related. And dispatched to a friend. It's two Aussie mates who read out their letters to each other in a simple, joyful celebration of their friendship. I've never actually been on a diet in my whole life. It's true. And the only thing I weigh is flour, sugar, butter and suitcases. Finally, Radio Atlas uses subtitles to bring non-English audio docos and stories to a wider audience. And if you don't speak Danish, uh, he's actually giving his football team a passionate pep talk before a match. A couple of other things I learned from podcasts this week about Denmark. Apparently stage hypnosis is illegal there as it is in Belgium and in some parts of the US. Good to know. Thanks to the Y Factor for telling me that. Also to let you know, those horizontal striped French nautical shirts called Marinière or Breton shirts, they became a bit of a fashion item. Well, they were actually designed to make it easier to find you if you fell overboard. Thanks to the BBC doco Out of Line for that pearl of wisdom. And if you've heard anything good recently, then let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, and I'll be featuring lots of your recommendations on future shows. <laughs> it's a song that took years to write, once had as many as 80 verses, and was practically ignored when it first came out 34 years ago. But Bob Dylan was a fan, and when John Cale, formerly of the Velvet Underground, recorded a cover version, a little-known musician called Jeff Buckley heard it. 
Since then, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen's been covered in many different languages by hundreds of artists, including Willie Nelson, Bon Jovi, K.D. Lang and Justin Timberlake. The BBC series Soul Music collects stories about what the song means to people and how it's touched their lives. My name's Brandy Carlyle. When I first heard Hallelujah, I was about 16 or 17. I was dropping out of high school, terrible haircut, struggling with um, what it meant to be gay and what it meant in the landscape of religion that I was raised in. I used to listen to Hallelujah in my bed. I would just play it on repeat and sleep to it all throughout the night and kind of dream to it. Now I'm a, I'm a touring singer-songwriter, and I'm able to take my music on the road and sing for lots and lots of people, which is really all I ever wanted to do. And it's a good thing it worked out because I don't really know how to do anything else except chop wood. But when I sing Hallelujah, I just go inside. You can't really preach that song because I think when people sing it, they're singing it to themselves. Hallelujah. Through most of the decade that followed the release of Hallelujah, the song just kind of languished. And so then John Cale from the Velvet Underground recorded the song as part of a Leonard Cohen tribute album. He had heard Leonard Cohen sing it on stage, but he didn't really know the words, so he called over to Leonard's office and asked them to send the lyrics so that he could actually learn the song the right way, went out to dinner or whatever, came back. His fax machine was full of these pages and pages and pages of lyrics. Leonard had basically said, I'm still trying to figure out how this song goes. I don't know which are the right lyrics, so I'm just going to send you everything and, and see if you can figure it out. Baby, I've been here before I know this room, I've walked this floor I used to live alone before I knew you John Cale kind of stripped the song down a bit. He moved some of the verses around. He brought in uh, another verse or two. He dropped a couple of verses. So it was a much more intimate rendition of this song. And it's actually that version that was the first time that Jeff Buckley heard this song. Jeff was just a struggling musician. He came to New York. He was house-sitting for somebody that he knew, and they had this tribute record among their LPs, and he got it out and put it on. So when I finally did leave Santorini, I ended up in New York City. Before I showed up in the East Village, I guess Buckley had been playing, I think it started as an open mic. The word was that he was coming out with a, with a record. I remember my living room, I had these two big windows. It was the best part of my very, very cheap apartment. And in, in mid-morning, we, we faced south, and that's when I would get light. And I remember playing Hallelujah as loud as I could with the sun streaming in over the hardwood. And... Oh, and the smoke lingering through the rays of light and, yeah, and feeling and being taken up. Maybe there is a God above, but all I've ever learned from love was how to shoot somebody who And it's not a cry that you hear at night It's not somebody who's seen the light It's a cold and 
relations place. It was the first day and the office manager took me on a tour of the office and she takes me into this one office and there's two women uh, sitting there and one turns around to say hello. This other woman sitting there and she had this blonde hair and her back was to me and she turned to face me and she turned to face me and she had the palest blue eyes. (laughs) Oh my God. Heartbreakingly pale blue eyes and this just narrow, narrow face so that all you saw was gold and blue. And she says, oh, hey. (laughs) And I'm just like, I'm just laid out by how beautiful she is. And she says, oh, hey. And she reaches her hand out to to shake mine, just an introduction. And so I shake her hand and she turns back and I notice that her other hand has this giant diamond on it. And I'm just like, oh, (laughs) Of course. So in the first few months that I was working on the job, I just had the most massive crush on this woman. But Shawnee, Shawnee left. She moved on. She went to another place. And uh, every two weeks, I would call her because we were a PR agency and she had moved in-house at some big magazine. And whenever I would call her, I would say, how's Leighton? Leighton was her boyfriend. How are you guys doing? And then finally one day, I call her. Same ritual just giving her the phone call. And, yeah, there's nothing. We're doing great. Everything's fine at work. And I say, how's Leighton? And she says, yeah, you know, it's actually a pretty bad time. Um, Yeah, we're thinking about splitting up. And I say, oh, that's that's terrible. You know, um, there's this big band playing down near my apartment apartment in East Village. (laughs) And... And so we arranged. We arranged to meet. From the moment we sat down, we found we found out that we found out we loved the same music. We found out that we read the same books. I found out that she didn't think I was just this little boy. That that she thought I was really intelligent, and the, that that she that she liked me. <laughs> And it happened really, really fast. Um, We went from that dinner and a drink to getting together that weekend to spending that weekend together to spending the next weekend together. And two months in, we're just head over heels. And our friendship uh, rapidly turned into a love affair, like a, a potent love affair that we played out in the city and that we played out to the background of this music that we both loved. Well, there was a time when you let me know what's really going on below But now you never show that to me, do you? But remember when I moved in you and the holy dove was moving too and every breath we drew during those days, you know, when I was lying in bed with Sean, waking up at noon on a Sunday and uh, (laughs) 
watching the sunlight come across the bedroom and having Buckley sing to us. It was a moment that was praiseworthy. It was a, a moment that was celebratory. And so that, that song went from that song went from the embodiment of my own loneliness to a promise that uh, even in these small moments, right, I realized that you can step through those moments and and transcend. Maybe there's a God above, but all I've ever learned from love was how to shoot somebody who outdrew you. And it's not a cry that you hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. 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 When I listen to Cohen's version now, I, you know, the, that last syllable of hallelujah is kind of clipped. And when I listen to Buckley's version, he just, he just lets it soar out, you know, across the horizon. And when this woman turned to me and reflected back to me the love that I felt for her, it was like that chorus soaring out over a horizon. I felt that our life could be rich, <laughs> that our, our life could be beautiful. James Tallarico, and he liked the song so much he ended up naming his daughter after it. Also featured is music journalist Alan Light, who was no big fan of the original Leonard Cohen version, it has to be said, and singer Brandy Carlisle sharing their stories about Hallelujah from the BBC series Soul Music. That story was produced for BBC Radio 4 by Sarah Conkey. And Soul Music's covered well over a 100 songs already, so plenty more to listen to. I've recently enjoyed ones about the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit, Craftworks, Computer World and Boys Don't Cry by The Cure. Links on our website now. He's played in the NBA and stands over two metres tall in his socks. But Paul Shirley isn't your typical pro basketball playing jock. For starters, he's a talented writer, doesn't take himself too seriously, and was a self-confessed late bloomer who had limited early success with the ladies. Perhaps it's this modest tone that makes his podcast Stories I Tell on Dates, based on his book of the same name that came out last year, so endearing. And his deadpan delivery, goofy sound design and sense of humour probably helped too. I'm Paul Shirley, and I've been on a lot of dates. This wasn't necessarily because I was all that smooth or debonair. It was more of a necessity. You see, I spent a decade and a half pursuing a basketball dream that took me all over the world, and eventually into the NBA. 
But back to the dates. I've noticed that when I'm on dates, I find myself telling stories. Stories I've told a hundred times before. About the 4-H fair in Kansas. About a ruptured spleen in Indianapolis. About a broken heart in Barcelona. And at first, I was disappointed in myself. Was I just going into material? But then I realized that everyone does this. We all have stories that make us who we are. These are mine. So sit back, lay down, or buckle up. Whatever feels right. We're going to go on a trip together, and I think you'll enjoy the ride. Welcome to my podcast. I'm Paul Shirley, and these are the stories I tell on dates. Introduction. Dustin from Nebraska and me. I live in the country, but not on a farm. This was the box my brothers and I marked in the pale green 4-H record books whose appearance announced the end of another steamy Kansas summer. The designation seemed so perfect that I sometimes wondered if they'd added it just for us. We had no tractors, no feedlots, no fields to plow. My father worked for the state, not for himself. And yet, we did have those two cows in the barnyard, and the 20 or so chickens next door, and the garden and the miniature orchard with the apricot tree we cheered on each spring, only to watch its blossoms lose their fight with a late freeze year after year. One fall day, after the record books had been turned in, I was wandering our non-farm when I came across a bright red balloon that was trapped in the fence near the apricot tree. I assumed the balloon had escaped from one of the plywood signs people sometimes nailed to trees next to our gravel roads to guide people to parties. Eye-catchers alongside an arrow and a hastily scrawled, Turn here! When I got closer to the fence line, I saw that this was no ordinary country balloon. This balloon had an envelope tied to it. An envelope that looked like someone had dragged it through our barnyard on the bottom of the boots my brothers and I wore when we fed the cows and chickens. Its corners were crumpled, and its body was creased, and it had stains that could very well have been poop-related. Despite the envelope's unkempt appearance, I was intrigued. The balloon had clearly arrived from somewhere else, one of those places all those people were going on all those airplanes that crossed our section of the Kansas sky, leaving contrails that looked like a game of missile command frozen by the unreliable Atari my brothers and I had inherited from a family friend. I was fascinated by the contrails, wondering where those people were going, wondering if I'd have the guts to join them, wondering what contrails even were. So, like a stranded sailor who's found a corked wine bottle washed up on his beach, I ripped open the stained envelope. The letter inside was from a boy named Dustin who was about my age and who went to school in a small town in Nebraska, a comparatively far place best known for its football team its corn, and how the first was named for the second. At the behest of a wildly optimistic teacher, Dustin and his classmates had written letters to prospective pen pals before attaching those letters to balloons like the one I'd come upon, in the hopes that someone like me might write back. I had questions. How had Dustin's balloon made it all the way from where he lived in Nebraska to where I lived in Kansas? What were the odds that I would find it? Or for that matter, that anyone would find it. His balloon could have landed in the field across the road or in the top of one of the cottonwood trees that towered over our property. It could have gotten caught in a power line or at the end of one of the satellite dishes that people in trailer parks invariably had, 
even though they lived in trailer parks. Then again, none of that had happened. Dustin's letter had landed where I could find it. So I went inside and I got out a pencil and a piece of paper, and I told Dustin I was fine and asked him how he was and explained my life to him. I probably used cursive because I had just learned cursive. It is likely that I told him about my two parents and two brothers and two dogs. I almost certainly mentioned baseball cards. Dustin and I exchanged handwritten letters for a few months. Then, thanks to more immediate concerns, which for me included those baseball cards, the episodes of He-Man I watched with my brothers every day after school, and a long-time goal of getting a stick to float all the way down the drainage ditch that ran from the apricot tree to the barnyard, our correspondence fell apart, and my pen pal was lost to the fogs of the wider world, which, I hoped, for Dustin, included growing up to be a fireman, spelled F-I-E-R-M-A-N. For me, the fogs involved Little League baseball games and Boy Scout camping trips and middle school dances where I huddled in a corner, avoiding the scary girls huddled in the opposite corner. In high school, I learned about physics and chemistry and interrupted the path of a curveball with my face, ending the baseball career that had seemed so promising back in Little League. I went to more dances where I continued to huddle, avoiding the scary girls who were now doing less huddling but might as well have been. And then, after a blustery May day at the football field in my small town marked the end of childhood, it was time to follow the contrails. First, thanks to my grades, to Iowa for college. Then, thanks to my ability to put a ball through a hoop, to Greece and Spain, and Russia and Atlanta and Chicago and Phoenix and Los Angeles, and Budapest and Buenos Aires and Basque country, and now I'm just trying to impress you with my understanding of alliteration. As I explored my versions of somewhere else, I didn't have much cause to think about Dustin, or pen pals generally. Until, that is, I overcame some of my fears vis-a-vis the scary girls and started going on dates. Real dates, I mean. The kind that involved me picking someone up from her apartment and driving her to a restaurant, where we made jokes about the waiter and the bad bread, and after which we sometimes kissed. It was after one of these dates, not one of the ones that involved kissing, probably, that I had a reason to think about Dustin and the bright red balloon. Going on dates is always a hopeful enterprise. It is also, usually, a futile one. Dating, then, has a lot in common with trying to find a pen pal by attaching a letter to a balloon and sending it into the sky. It isn't just that dates rarely go as we think they should, that we can't control the way people respond to us any more than Dustin could control whether his balloon got caught in the top of a cottonwood tree or found its way into my eager hands. It is also the nature of the dates themselves. We tend to think dates are mostly call and response, ask and listen, interviews almost, during which we ask about the other person's day or what movie he likes or what she remembers of kindergarten. But in reality, the good parts of our dates are pretty one-sided. Once the date has gotten going, possibly thanks to the arrival of the wine, we listen to what the person across from us has to say. And then we say, Aha! That makes me think of something. Maybe we don't use that exact manner of speaking because doing so would make us sound like Doc from Back to the Future. But you see what I mean. We are inspired to take the reins of the conversation, to talk about ourselves, 
just like Dustin and I did in our letters. Of course, instead of being separated by the few hundred miles of airspace that were between Dustin's school in Nebraska and my parents' house in Kansas, our dates are separated from us by a bar, the arm of a chair, or a table's breadth. And, because we are adults, we have moved beyond sentence fragments that describe how one of our brothers keeps hogging the Atari. Now, we tell stories. But these aren't just any stories. These are our favorite stories. Stories we've told dozens of times before. We tell these stories because in them we come off a certain way. Heroic or hilarious or broken but in a cool way. Like the lead singer of a band. We use these stories to explain ourselves. To figure out how we fit into the world. To decide how we feel about things. And yes, occasionally, because we want to get laid. This behavior could be viewed as duplicitous. It could be thought that we are manipulating our listener by presenting the best sides of ourselves. But come on. Telling our best stories, this is no more manipulative than wearing a flattering pair of jeans. And sometimes it's downright essential. Maybe the person across from us has gotten a mistaken impression of us that, because we made an offhand remark about wanting to learn guitar, we are the sort of person who would bring a guitar to a party. So we launch in. We tell a story that counteracts the guitar anecdote. Maybe a story about how we once went to a party and there was a guy with a guitar and he was the worst person in the world. We tell our stories to round out the listener's impression of us, to help the person understand that we are a whole human, with all kinds of viewpoints on politics and religion and love and death in our childhoods. The stories in this book are my stories. Sometimes they're the stories I tell when I'm trying to explain where I came from. Sometimes they're the stories I tell when I'm trying to explain where I'm going. Sometimes they're the stories I tell when I'm just trying to make someone laugh. <laughs> All of them are the stories I write on my wide-ruled paper, put in my envelopes, attached to my bright red balloons, and send into the sky, in the hopes that someone will find one of them and write back. Stories I Tell on Dates by Paul Shirley, produced by Lunch Break Entertainment. And if you enjoyed that, you can find more details about where to listen to more and subscribe if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Annie emailed pods at rnz.co.nz to recommend the podcast Dispatch to a Friend. We are two Australian friends. And in our podcast, we share our letters to each other about books, food, gardening, travels, and the ordinary pleasures of daily life. Gillian lives in urban Brisbane, Queensland, with a garden the size of a postage stamp and a nearby allotment. She's a cake maker and private cook who travels the world with her whisk to make wedding cakes that have a story of their very own. And Annabelle lives on a pecan farm in the northwest of New South Wales. She's a photographer, writer, and flower lover. Welcome to Dispatch to a Friend. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. Annie says in her email that somebody described the podcast as like a hot cup of tea, blanket, crackling fire 
and a warm hug all wrapped up together. Not to mention you learn some interesting bits and bobs along the way. Thanks for the recommendation, Annie, and do keep them coming in. So this show, Dispatch to a Friend, it involves these two real-life friends, Gillian Bell and Annabelle Hickson, reading out the letters they send to each other. And it's kind and it's warm and it's gentle and it's supportive, all those things you want a good friendship to be. As Annabelle told me in an email, we wanted to create a podcast that was joyful, not at all about self-help or crime investigation, just something to celebrate the ordinary pleasures of daily life and friendship. So here's part of a letter from Annabelle and some of Gillian's response. In family news, my sister has given birth to a little boy on the first day of spring, which is wonderfully symbolic, don't you think? She and her husband are just the most beautiful couple. They're so supportive of each other, and I have no doubt this will continue into parenthood. My brother-in-law called with the happy news, exclaiming that Katie had just had a boy and has taken to motherhood like a duck to water. This was about five minutes into motherhood. Can you believe how sweet and gorgeous he is? This is really what they are like together. Kindness and respect make up so much of all that matters in a couple, don't you think? And some kind of Venn diagrammatic overlap of tasted movies and books helps too. Whenever I spend time with them, I come away consciously deciding to be kinder to Ed, to properly see him in between all the bills and school drop-offs and rush breakfasts and work. I imagine Ed wishes they lived a bit closer. And so do I. I want to cuddle my vernix-covered nephew desperately and to sit beside my little sister who is now suddenly a mother and her ukulele lullaby-singing husband, who is now a father. This little boy will be so loved, from me and father. It's been very nice sitting here writing to you with a cup of tea in the sun, while Ed builds some new garden beds with his big excavator. It makes a shovel look like a complete joke. And the kids work on a ballet formance, as they say to which Ed and I have been cordially invited. I find it much easier to relax when I'm surrounded by other people's industry. But I better get up now and clean up the mess from a very enthusiastic cooking session for Father's Day in the kitchen. The kids made an omelette, bacon and eggs, and pancakes. He would have been very proud. Daisy managed to oversee the whole thing while dishing out unsolicited advice on cooking and other unrelated matters. Nine years old is a hell of an age. I love you so much and really looking forward to seeing you in the flesh next week. Let's have a glass of champagne to celebrate my gorgeous new nephew, spring, and just generally being friends. There's some medley jam waiting for you too. Love, Annabelle. Do you know what? We've run out of coffee. It's a Father's Day disaster. I might have to go to the neighbours. No, I think this is not a Father's Day disaster. I think this is a good lesson. For coffee, for coffee people. But mum, you can stop your addiction. Yeah, I can. You can. So what do I have to stop it? Just coffee, because you're always at coffee every day. <laughs> Phone, work. That's mm. a minor. It's a minor addiction, okay. You don't have to stop it, but I would like you to. <laughs> Dear Annie, 
I had to lick my fingers of the salt and vinegar from the bag of crisps I was eating before opening your letter. When I read what you'd written, something about body as a temple, my expression was like one of those emojis. Suddenly, I had a headache from eating too much of the chocolate-coated honeycomb that my friend Emily had made. I've never actually been on a diet in my whole life. It's true. And the only thing I weigh is flour, sugar, butter and suitcases. Instead, I believe that wintertime is the correct time to gain a little thickness in the trunk. In our house, we call it our winter pelt, which we know we will shed again when the smell of fresh cucumbers and tomatoes replaces the golden pastry crust we're eating at the moment. It happens every year. The sap will start to stir again, just like in the trees in my garden. Food is a dear friend, never my enemy. Crisps, on the other hand, are like a distant relative that you should see about once a year at a wedding or Christmas. Every once in a while it's a treat to catch up. More frequent visits and you want to sick up. The day your letter arrived, it seemed like all those relatives had come round for a party all at once. Today, I ignored the fact that spring has officially started and baked three bread puddings. Two of my sisters popped round when they heard, so I gave them a pudding each, and we sat around the kitchen eating the third, which was still hot from the oven, drinking pots of tea, and then taste-testing some panna cotta-soaked lamingtons that I'd also made. Bread pudding is a winter staple in our house, and one that has been made for generations. It's not to be confused with bread and butter pudding, which is a much less thrifty dish, and one that I've never really taken to, largely due to its traditionally being made with thin white sliced bread, which I abhor. One of the few foods I turn my nose up at. I can't throw out stale bread. Throwing out good bread is like burning books. It's a criminal act in my eyes. <laughs> Sounds a bit harsh. Gillian Bell and Annabelle Hickson of the podcast Dispatch to a Friend. That's from episode four of the second series. You might use the subtitles when you watch a foreign language film or a TV show, but how about subtitles on a podcast? With more of us doing our listening on headphones and earbuds via a smartphone, our encounters with audio have become increasingly personal and intimate. Listening is something we're often doing alone. But having a little screen that you carry around with you at all times is also raising some interesting possibilities, like Radio Atlas, which brings non-English audio documentaries to an English-speaking audience, using subtitles that are timed to appear on your screen at exactly the same time as you hear the audio. Producer Eleanor McDowell started up Radio Atlas and runs it in her spare time. Essentially, what Radio Atlas is, is it's a space for audio documentaries that have been turned into subtitled movies. So it's a way of understanding what's being said in an audio documentary that's been made in a language you don't necessarily speak. There's just 
text that is appearing on screen as you're listening to essentially tell you what's being said at any particular point and to get out of the way when it's just asking you to focus on the sound. So it's um, the only thing that you'll see on the screen are words. Why and when did you have that idea? Well, I should say, I mean, it's actually not my original idea. There's a, a group over here called In the Dark who are wonderful, who've been doing these sort of radio collective listening events for about eight years now, I think. And one of the first things I ever saw them do, their founder, Nina Garthwaite, originally came from film and she wanted to screen a Norwegian documentary. So she put cinematic subtitles on it. And um, it was my, it wasn't my first experience of hearing a documentary made in a language I didn't speak. I'd done that before and like listened with a huge paper transcript on my knee and kind of reading along. And it became much more of a reading experience than a listening experience. And so sitting in a cinema for that first time at the In the Dark event and seeing the subtitles come out and just realising that I was able to lose myself in the sound for the first time was this really transformative experience. Ifølge de gamle sound betyder det uendelig ulykker eller din egen død, hvis du møder din egen dobbeltgænger. Den, der ligner dig. Den, der bærer dit navn. Den, der deler din skabende. Den sande historie, der er har til dig, den her gang hedder dobbeltgænger. So Radio Atlas just kind of comes from that, hopefully trying to kind of move on the way that the subtitles work a little bit. So it's kind of trying to be very sympathetic to the sound, trying to kind of realize when, you know, if if some if a sentence that someone's speaking is really heavy with emotion and they're breaking down halfway through or they're telling a joke and you want to know if their comic timing is on point or if there's a very sort of musical delivery, trying to get text on screen that reflects all of those things that are important to us in the sound. Because uh, it goes without saying you can't really do a voiceover for these things, can you? Well, actually, I mean, there's a really interesting tradition of people translating in sound. I think maybe particularly because, you know, I'm I'm a radio producer who's working in the UK and like there's a lot of kind of conversation in sort of European countries where sort of radio programs are, are trying to kind of move across borders. And there have been some really interesting pieces made where work has been translated in the sound. And I think it's it's often, you know, if it's done well, it's done in a way where someone is essentially building a different documentary out of the component parts of it. And it can be really elegantly done. So you get a kind of translation voice who's almost like adding another character to the whole thing. But yeah, I think in general, it's quite hard to do that without making it sound like the translation voice is a kind of interloper in the piece who's just sort of shouting over the emotion, being like, they're kissing or like something's happening. Like a sort of awkward, noisy person at a party who's ruining everything for everyone. <laughs> and the fact that the subtitles are on a screen, whether that's a smartphone screen or that you're casting it to some TV screen or projector or whatever, raises the prospect of what you just called collective listening, which... That's quite an interesting idea, isn't it? Because listening seems to have gone almost full circle from us huddling around a radio uh, as a family, mm. maybe listening to news broadcasts. Listening's become very, very solitary in the smartphone age, hasn't it? Yeah, well, it's always, I think, you know, our experience of 
audio documentaries, radio documentaries, podcasts, is, it, they're so, it's so tied to the technology, the way in which we feel the experience works. So yeah, you're right, when you had kind of crystal sets in what, the 20s, 30s, you know, it was it was technology that was sort of very, very quiet and everyone would have to kind of gather around it and not make any noise and, and listen as a group. And um, that sort of moved away into this kind of headphone listening age where it becomes something that's seen as much more kind of solitary and intimate and private. And then at the same time, you're having people who are kind of trying to recognize audio as an art form, who are trying to kind of do these collective listening cinematic events. So it's sort of, yeah, I think it's something that can be very responsive to the technology that it's coming through. And are you a real languages whiz yourself? Oh, my God, no. No? I'm so bad at languages. I'm like I've got terrible I've got terrible schoolgirl French and schoolgirl Spanish and like and I've got sort of little bits of like I can kind of tune my ear into things. So when I'm doing when I'm doing the subtitles for stuff, I'll have translations that've been made and often they'll be dual language translations so you can kind of dive in and see how the sentences are breaking up and see how things work and kind of orientate yourself using various words or listening for repetitions and stuff like that but I I am so bad at languages <laughs> it's really like it's a really terrible hobby to have picked but no all the translations you know I'm very lucky that a lot of the stuff that I'm working with has been professionally translated often for competitions which will be how I've managed to have access to it but what I'm trying to do more and more is to kind of uncover I say secret histories, they're not secret in the countries where the radio is being made, but secret to English language listeners, you know, the people who weren't necessarily put forward to competitions, who were maybe a bit sort of awkward or provocative or, you know, interesting in different ways, but weren't quite what the radio broadcaster wanted to say, this is us in a kind of big international space. I'm trying to kind of find those people and get them translated in various ways. So that's been quite an interesting thing. How do you find the stories? Where where are you looking? So I think one of the main places that I've started is with these international competitions. So over in Europe, you've got things like the Pre-Europa or a kind of learning space called the International Features Conference. And for a documentary to be played in that space, because it's an international audience, everything gets translated into English and you have these paper transcripts that get made. So it's a really good way to kind of dip a toe into something and see whether or not it's a piece that you'd want to be kind of interested in making accessible to a wider audience. So that's probably a starting point. But there's also lots of stuff on Radio Atlas that's come from just kind of meeting producers and them describing something to me and me finding it funny or intriguing. There's there's a tiny piece on there that I've got an overwhelming amount of affection for that's called um, the Pep Talk. And it's a Danish football coach who's got a bit of a terrible team in Denmark. And he's trying to kind of pep them up midway through a, a match that they're playing. And um, he just sort of starts 
screaming these obscenities at it. And when I first heard about it, I was sort of listening to the audio and hearing my Danish friend who was kind of talking very kind of calmly over the top, like a sort of simultaneous translation in the UN. And he was saying like, yeah, we're going to go and smash that little girl's choir next door. Like, and actually, I'm just about to tell you what's being said in it. And it's probably, yeah language restrictions on what you can broadcast right so shall I <laughs> but it, it made me laugh and so I asked him to write out a translation and that's one of the things that's up there so it's like yeah kind of serendipitous a lot of the time the things that are up there but I think the main thing that it's trying to do isn't necessarily to say this is the best documentary that exists in the world or this is like this is what Sweden sounds like or this is what France sounds like because that would be a kind of ridiculous endeavor because obviously there are a kind of multiplicity of approaches across a variety of broadcasters and independent spaces and sound artists and you know it's as diverse as any country in which you do speak the language but I think the point of it is really to kind of question why we don't have a good way of translating in sound why we don't care that we're not hearing the majority of uh, great audio work that's being made around the world and so just trying to kind of find intriguing little windows that would hopefully make people realize get a little glimpse of some of the stuff they're missing and when you've got the subtitles coming across and they're time to chime in with what Mm. you're hearing am i seeing anything else on the screen or is it just a black space are there any other images no, it's just uh, it's just the text coming up. Sometimes a, uh, I like I like an ellipsis to kind of have a, a pause sometimes, but that's that's about as kind of extreme as it gets. It's very much designed to foreground the sound because I've seen there are really interesting experiments that I've seen where people have done animated radio and they've kind of had text flying across the screen or you sort of see characters illustrated, which I think are kind of great ways of promoting radio and like getting stories to reach a different audience. But I think what I want Radio Atlas to be is something really functional that foregrounds the sound. It's a tool to access these things. It's a tool to lose yourself in a sound world. And I think when it doesn't need to be visual, I want the visual stuff to disappear so that you can just kind of immerse yourself in listening and kind of remember that that's always the most important part of the experience. Just finally, if someone wants to start just checking out Radio Atlas. Have you got a few stories you reckon, you know, two or three that they should just go for initially just to give them a feeling of what Radio Atlas is all about? I mean, one of the the things that I mentioned, there's a very short piece that's called The Pep Talk that really makes me laugh that I often play when I'm introducing the whole concept to people. So I'd recommend I'd recommend listening to that as a way in. There's also a documentary that's about 16 minutes long that's called Writer that I think is really interesting that's about so many different things. But it's, um, I think what's fascinating as an English language listener is it's a Belgian radio producer who's going to interview someone in America. So you hear his interview in English, but then you hear how she's kind of translating it and reacting to him. And it's sort of, quite an interesting jarring experience in terms of thinking about the inverse of what we're used to hearing with how people translate it's also just a very gripping documentary she's uh it's a producer called Katerina Smets and she is interviewing a writer who calls himself writer who's quite a kind of difficult character and uh, the interview very quickly goes somewhere that she wasn't expecting so it's just a very kind of gripping listen this is my one of my guns and then um one of your guns yeah how did that feel to handle a gun i have no idea how it must feel well let's change that 
Ryder doet zijn kleerkast open en schuift wat kleren opzij. There's also the most popular podcast in Denmark. This thing called Third Ear that uh, can like sell out thousand seat cinemas in an hour or something uh, with people just hearing a premiere of one of their podcasts. It's a really kind of gripping storytelling show. It's always a very, very good uh, sort of gateway, I think, to a lot of this stuff. So there's an episode called The Double, which is on Radio Atlas, which is worth a try. That's about um, it's told by a radio producer called Thomas Anderson. And he tells the story of when he was a young man growing up in a small Danish town where there was another young man called Thomas Anderson who was the same age and they'd never met until the night when the other Thomas Anderson tried to run him over and kill him. Sounds like the start of a pretty good story, doesn't it? Eleanor McDowell of Radio Atlas and you can find links to those three stories she mentioned called The Pep Talk Writer and The Double on our website right now if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash the podcast hour. From me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.